It's good to see everybody out. We're going to be continuing this morning in the series that we've been running for about four Sunday mornings in a row now on Galatians 5 that I've been calling um, Harvesting the Fruit of the Spirit. And we've had four lessons leading up, and now we've finally gotten to the actual <laughs> fruit of the Spirit. And we're going to have three lessons now on the fruits of the Spirit themselves, and they're going to be three groups of threes. There are nine fruits of the Spirit listed by Paul. And I think they group themselves really neatly into threes. Um, so we've t- but just to review what we've talked about a little bit in the last four weeks, um, in verse 1 of, of Galatians 5, we see that the whole purpose of Christ and, and his coming was to set us free, free from the law, free from sin, free from death. And in verses 2 uh, through 12, um, we see that this walk in the Spirit must depend on grace and not upon anything else. And we said that grace is the soil in which the fruits of the Spirit grow. The understanding that uh, we have nothing of our own and that everything, every blessing we get in Christ comes directly from Him and by His power and not through us and, and, what, and the awesome things that, that, that we're doing. Uh, we, we, we understand that we are actually... Uh, not very awesome, not very righteous at all, uh, especially when we hold ourselves in comparison to the call of Christ, uh, the mold of Christ, which we're trying to fit ourselves, mold ourselves into, conform ourselves to. Um, And very good thoughts, by the way, from from Paul on the Lord's Supper that lead kind of directly into some of what I'm going to talk about this uh, and what we've been talking about in this series. And so then we talked about the idea that the law is fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor, and that if we do not do that, we'll be biting and devouring each other, verse 15. And that walking by the Spirit, verse 16, is set fundamentally in opposition to the path of the flesh, and that if you're doing one, you can't do the other, and vice versa. So verse 18, if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. In other words, there'll be no need for outside uh, compulsion to make you do the things you're supposed to be doing if you're walking in the spirit that is if you're doing these things for the love of them for the the sake of cultivating the fruit that's offered in christ and then last week we talked about the works of the flesh and this is a bit of an unpleasant lesson as we went through them but it's very important because the works of the flesh are fundamentally in contrast in opposition to the fruit of the Spirit that we're going to talk about over the next three weeks. So you, we want to avoid the works of the flesh at all costs, and we want to embrace and cultivate the fruit of the Spirit at every step. And so hopefully we can get uh, some, some, uh, some keys here to developing this fruit uh, in our own personal walks with Christ. Today we're going to talk about love, joy, peace. These are the first three of the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, there's a commentator named uh, Warren Wearsby who has divided these three, these nine uh, works or uh, fruits of the Spirit into uh, three triads, and that's kind of how we're going to take them. The first three we could talk about as being, uh, or Wearsby talks about, and I, I think it's a good analysis, as being the first three, love, joy, peace, as being Godward values, like how we relate to God. Uh, the second three, uh, patience, kindness, goodness, as being uh fellow man word uh, values in terms of how we relate to our fellow man. And then the last three, faithfulness, 
gentleness, self-control, our self-word values, how we see ourselves and relate to ourselves. And again, there are, uh, you know, there's overlap in each of those three categories, and some of them are going to apply in, in, in all of those areas. But in terms of how we think about them, we can generally think about the first three as being about how we relate to God, the second three is how we relate to man, and the third three is how we relate to ourselves. So, with all that being said, let's just read Galatians 5, verses 22 through the end of the chapter, and then we'll come back to 22 and focus on love, joy, peace for this lesson. Galatians 5, starting in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Okay. Love, joy, peace. And these lessons may um, delve pretty deeply into the area of word study, and I hope not to be too tedious. I hope to give you some applications here as well. But the words themselves that are used here are quite important for us to understand uh, what Paul's getting at here. So first thing, we need to talk about the idea of fruits versus works, as in the fruits of the spirit versus works of the flesh. We, we said last week when we talked about the works of the flesh that the works of the flesh are work. That's the first thing you need to understand about them. They are presented as labor, as toil, as, and, and labor and toil, even though it might be said to have some benefits in some places in the scripture, it's always presented as a burden, as a negative, because it is not the original state in which we see uh, mankind living in with God in the garden. Um, at least the kind of work that we have to do now to sustain uh, survival uh, was not uh, present in the original uh, state of things with God and man. And so the ways of the flesh involve work. They might advertise themselves as, as fun and pleasure and, and you know, flashy, glittery uh, attractions. Uh, but underneath all that, they are work, painful, hard work that will take everything you have from you. But this is not how the fruit of the Spirit is described. The fruit, a fruit in, in, in the world that we live in, you know, if you have a, a fruit tree, uh, I was just at Scott and Mary's actually yesterday uh, eating some lunch with them, and, and we played, uh, played a game, and it was, it was a lot of fun. And I got to see their backyard. They got a really awesome orange tree back there. Well, an orange off of your orange tree that you grow in your backyard uh, although it, you know, it might take some work to get it off the tree, you might you know, uh, expend some energy pulling it down off the branches. When you get it, when you taste it, it's its own reward, right? It's something to be enjoyed. Um, fruit is one of the most valuable foods that we can find in nature because uh, it's, uh, well, it's natural and organic, and there is an association between fruit and abundance. That is, fruit is sweet, and so it offers... Uh, lots of, of calories, uh, and there are biological incentives for us to go after sweet things, things with a high fat content, because in nature, those things are pretty rare. Uh, and so whenever we, that's why we, those are the foods that we really like, right? Stuff that's sweet and stuff that, that has a high fat content. Well, that's why fruit is so sweet, 
uh, or why we like fruit so much is because it, it has a high sugar content. And, and so it's kind of like nature's candy, right? You get a good piece of fruit, you're like, oh, let me really go to town and, and, and eat that because uh, your, your, your mind, which uh, or, uh, your, your, your inner incentives uh, that, are, that are biological in a lot of ways say, well, we don't know when the next time we're going to get something like that is, so let's just eat this fruit down, right? Well, the point here spiritually is that these qualities that Paul's listing are their own reward. There's things to be savored, things to be enjoyed, as opposed to labor to be endured, ultimately with no reward at the end, in the flesh. So the first of these words is translated in the English as love. And, of course, uh, you know, love is... Uh, you know, a beautiful idea in the English, but it's quite broad, quite vague. You could love a lot of things in a lot of different ways, especially with the way that we, you know, use the word love today. I might have a really good hamburger and say, oh, I love this hamburger. But, I mean, do I really love a sandwich? Is that possible? I mean, is that possible in the biblical sense? Well, when we're talking about love in the New Testament sense, we're talking about agape. Um, in almost every case where the, where the word love is used, it is this Greek word agape, although in the Greeks had multiple words uh, for love. I think they had at least four, uh, and, and three of them were pretty uh, heavily prominent in terms of spoken language at the time of, of Christ. But this is the one that's almost always used in the New Testament, is agape. And, and, and you could translate this, uh, other ideas that are sort of buried in this word are benevolence, goodwill, good esteem, loving kindness. Um, the root word uh, is from a, a word that means to prefer. Uh, and when the Greeks would use this, it would often mean um, the love of, of God, or in, in a Greek pagan context, they would often say the gods. But, but the idea is that uh, agape is to prefer that which, is, which has divine qualities, or to prefer something for its divine qualities. Um, uh, this is the, the word that's most consistently used across uh, the New Testament in the Greek Septuagint. Uh, this is also, you know, agape is used always in the Old Testament too. Um, agape was seen by the Greeks as the highest form of love. Uh, Plato talked about this and he, it seems, got it from, from Socrates. And, and, and they praised agape love, um, that, that is love because something is godlike or, 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 or divine. Uh, as the highest form of love. And this is where we get our idea of platonic love. In the English, it comes from Plato's name. Uh, and, and it has this idea of friends who uh, love each other because of who they are, not because they're in a relationship or because they're related to each other. Because you have other words in the Greek, like eros, which is the Greek term for sexual love. Uh, there's Philadelphia, which is the Greek term for brotherly love or kinly, family love. Um, but agape is based on nothing other than love for the divine qualities of a thing, to prefer what is good. That's buried in the idea of agape. So from a biblical worldview, agape is also the highest form of love. It was known as such by the early Christians. Um, all other forms of love have limited application, right? From a biblical worldview, eros... Uh, sexual love, that's, that's reserved for marriage commitment. Philadelphia, um, that's reserved for, uh, you know, family, either physical or spiritual. We could, we could properly apply the term 
Philadelphia to the love we have for each other in the church because we are a family, we are brothers. Um, but it, it is still somewhat limited in, in, in its application, right? You can't love everybody like a brother. It's not really possible. But you can love everyone for what is good in them. You can love everyone for that part of them which is divine, that part of them which is made in the image of God. Agape is the only form of love with no limit on where and how it can be applied or expressed. Against such there is no law. That's what Paul says at the end of this list. And we're going to talk more about that phrase as we go through the next three Sunday mornings. But just to tell you uh, where we're going with that, against such there is no law means there's no limit on this. You can run with this as far as you want. Get as creative as you want. Look for as many ways as you can to sow this love in the world. There is no stopping you. There's no limiting principle. Love without limitation. Love as properly defined. Love for that which is good. So let's go beyond Philadelphia in the church, although that's important that we love each other as brothers, but let's get to agape. Philadelphia oftentimes can mean nothing more than love of tribe, right? Love of people that are like me. And again, not that that's, it's not even that that's not valuable. We all do that on some level. We all prefer people uh, that share our interests, that share our experiences, that, that, that share certain qualities with us. And there's, it's really hard to step outside of that kind of personal life experience bias, right? So it's not even that Philadelphia has no place, but just that agape is higher. Agape is greater. Agape is the love of God in everything. Looking for God everywhere he can be found. In everyone and in everything. People will often say um, things like, well, I try to see the good in people. I try to find the good in situations and things in, in, in people. And this expression, even though it's, even in the way it's phrased, it's a little bit half-hearted, right? The idea there is almost like, well, there aren't that many good things to see, but I try to, to pick them out. Well, I, don't, I don't think that's quite right. I think there's plenty of goodness around us to observe if we'll just look at it. There is divinity and goodness all around. It is to be seen in, in, in everything and in everyone on some level, because God has created this entire world that we live in. He's set it in order. He's caused it to function. And he has made each and every human being in his image. And so this is kind of, we could think of this as a kind of a mundane divinity or a mundane goodness that we see in everything. And when I say divinity, when I say goodness, keep in mind I'm not you know, saying capital D divinity, capital G goodness. We understand that we're all fallen, broken, failing people. So whatever is good in us is, is only God's and not our own. But that being said, still the fact remains, we're made in God's image. This creation was made good. Good by God's standards. And so that's what we need to see in the world and in human beings. But someone might fairly object. People don't act very divine a lot of the time. People don't act very good. 
oftentimes. Sometimes it's hard to see that in people. Sometimes it's hard to love people in that way. And that's true. It can be hard. But um, in imperfection, there is strength. In our, our weakness, people may see uh, that divine perfection that we are aspiring toward. In the imperfection of others that, w- that we see around us, we might see what God could do in them if only they would surrender to him, if only they would give themselves to him. That's what we have to be seeing in each other. Instead of taking this stance of, well, I'm going to look down on this person because they're lost and they're in sin. No, instead we should, see, we should look at them and say, what can I do? to break down whatever barriers stand between this person and Christ. How can I help make this situation right, bring this person back to the open arms of Christ? We have to recognize that the only thing separating lost people from divine joy with God is sin, is is their sin. And while a lot of times that can seem like an insurmountable barrier, In Christ, it actually becomes quite an easy barrier to overcome. Not that we won't struggle with sin, not that we won't uh, have to, you know, continually do battle with Satan. Of course, that's a part of the Christian walk. But when people understand that Christ is the answer, that trusting in him is the mechanism through which people are saved, that confessing his name as Lord is the entryway into his path, that a repentance, that turning from their old life and toward the new uh, is required and that entering into the covenant is required. Well, these are, in baptism, well, these are pretty simple, straightforward steps that most people, when they're made to understand um, their situation, they're standing before God, and if they're honest, if they truly seek reconciliation with God, they will come. But... A lot of times we create the barrier in our head and we say, well, they will never listen. That kind of sinner could never hear the word. Or this kind of person is not going to be receptive to the gospel. Well, friends, we don't know. We don't know until we try, to the best of our ability, to remove the barriers that stand between this person and coming to Christ. We have to first find out what those are and then address them. The sin separation which we see in those who are lost should be viewed not as an occasion for us to elevate ourselves or to respond with, um, with incredulity. Like, a lot of times I'll see people, you know, saying things, well, like, I just don't understand how somebody could do that, or I, I would never act like that, or I can't believe somebody would sin in, in X, Y, Z away. Or it's their own fault that they won't be saved. These kinds of statements to say nothing of the truth value of them, at the very least, they take very much the wrong attitude toward the lost. An attitude of looking down upon them as opposed to calling them um, to join us because we are fundamentally uh, no different than them. We found ourselves in the same situation that they are in and now we want to stand over them. Well, friends, that's not uh, the stance that Christ took to call people to him, and that's not the attitude that we should take. Instead, encountering a lost soul should be an occasion of of real tragedy for us. We should feel something when there is somebody 
who could be reconciled to Christ and be abounding in the kingdom, and for whatever reason they're not. That should hurt us when we see that. This is a soul that's bound for glory, that God intends to bring into his glory and into union with him. And he's intended such from the beginning of time. And this soul has lost their way and is separated from God by a thin barrier of, of willful sin. And I say a thin barrier not to minimize it, but just to say that those walls can be broken down at any time. God stands ready. Agape love toward the lost and those in the world means calling the world back to God's design, to God's original order, to say there is a way to dwell in peace with God. And we aspire to bring, to call the whole world back to peace with God through the gospel if they will come. A secondary idea in this word, and, and I think this is important to bring out, there was something that they would do in, in the early Christian community that, that scholars now will call love feasts. They may not have called them that at the time, but that's a term used in Jude 1 and 2 Peter 2, so they may have called them that. Agape feasts uh, is probably a more proper way to uh, refer to them, and, and they're referred to directly in, in Jude 1 and verse 12 and, and in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13. We won't go to both those passages because it would be a little bit of a tangent, but the, the, uh, the point uh, that I want to bring out there uh, is that uh, these were a little bit like what we might call uh, potlucks today. They were communal feasts among members of the local church wherein there was, there was food provided to all at the expense of individual wealthy Christians in the community. And apart from the two scriptures that I just cited that make reference to these, there, there are a lot, a lot of references in the early Christian writings, especially in like Tertullian and Justin Martyr, that speak about this as a common practice among early Christians. Um, that they would sh basically, that they would share communal meals. And this was a way that they would have fellowship with each other apart from, uh, from, from their worship uh, one with another. And that uh, often this was uh, uh, also an occasion for benevolence, where those who were less fortunate in the congregation would be fed at no expense to them by those who had means. So from everything we see in the scripture, it seems that this was an extension of, of, of hospitality culture in the Middle East. It's not a binding command, okay? So, I mean, uh, there, there, there's no command that we share meals together as Christians as, you know, as uh, a command per se. However, it was an important enough practice to be widespread and commonplace in the record of early Christianity. Um, I think that means we had, we had better give some consideration to the importance of sharing time with each other, doing things together, having meals together um, in a setting where we can associate with each other um, freely, socially, outside uh, what we might see as some of the social bounds that we uh, boundaries that we abide by in this building and, and, and for good reason we want to have everything in order but we can communicate with each other openly and, and share with each other um, our lives and our struggles and encouragement um, that, that work of the church uh, in lifting each other up and encouraging one another and spurring each other on that goes far beyond the bounds of what we do in this building at the worship times that we've set we should be in each other's um, lives um, 
doing these things together for the purpose of building this community, this family, this brotherhood. Food is uh, a basic human consideration, and so I think that's why they would do this, especially in an, in an ancient context. You've got a lot of people who are literally starving. You're trying to uh, share with them the gospel. Um, it, it's difficult and counterproductive to speak to anybody about the gospel if they are physically starving, if they haven't eaten, if, if they have an empty stomach. And so this, this problem was uh, in some ways addressed by Christians being radically generous with people. And that's something I think we need to embrace more today as well. Perhaps we'd serve ourselves well to consider how we might physically feed those who are hungry or who could just use a free meal. Um, and once we've met their physical needs, we share the gospel with them. And that's important. I'm not suggesting this be done on church grounds or with church funds, and I'm not advocating a particular mode or method in carrying out this work. But what I'm suggesting is that um, historically, uh, at least in churches of Christ, we've been quick to dismiss the needs of the body as a contributing factor to the reception of the gospel message. But I think it does matter. It mattered to the early Christians, um, the, the well-being of the poor to whom the, the gospel message went. And, and, and so I think that's just something for us to consider how, how we as, as Christians might um, address that work in our own lives in an individual way on our own, um, in whatever way we are blessed to be able to, to give to others and to help others. Um, I think we, we've also been uh, too quick to dismiss the effect that having uh, fellowship in this manner, having association with each other uh, outside of worship, uh, the effect that that can have on a local body. Um, the love we show for each other in worship is a beautiful thing, fantastic, and, and we should appreciate that for everything that it is. But uh, to carry that love over into something like a shared meal or something like a shared experience. You know, I went to uh, Alcatraz on Thursday with uh, Mark and Jenny and John and Denise, and, and man, it was, it was a lot of fun. Alcatraz is um, a really scary place <laughs> to me in a lot of ways. Uh, it was everything that I anticipated and, and more. Um, but I would, you know, the experience of doing that with, with you know, John and Denise and with Mark and Jenny uh, meant a lot to me because uh, otherwise, you know, I'd be doing it by myself, which would be, you know, even, even weirder, right? <laughs> as weird as going to Alcatraz is, if you go there by yourself and you're just walking around looking at the prison, it's, it's like, it would be very bizarre, I think. So doing those kinds of things with each other, even if it's something as simple as just let's go get lunch or let's get a cup of coffee and talk or whatever, even things as simple as that or playing games with each other or just shooting the breeze about whatever is on our minds, as Christians, um, it elevates the love and the closeness we feel for each other all, all the more. It, there's real value in that. A lot of time I think we're, we're in this mode of being so focused on getting to the next thing, and, and I fall into it too, that, that we say, okay, I'm going to spend some time with my brethren here, but then I've got to get on to whatever i got going on, whatever I'm doing next, whatever I have going on later today. But instead, I think we should try in, in whatever small way we can to approach it more um, 
with a more relaxed attitude and say, I'm going to spend however much time needs to be spent with my brothers. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to prefer them. I'm going to dwell with them as much as I can in whatever setting I can um, to try to lift them up, to try to raise them up, and to try to be raised up myself by them. That's what we're here to do. That's, that's how we relate to one another as Christians. And so we need to uh, try in every way that we can to foster that, that love uh, both inside this building and outside of it. Agape is so important because love undergirds almost every Christian activity, every process we go through in the Christian walk. Uh, everything that we're required to do must be done in love, otherwise it's worthless in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, and Paul did have gifts from, from the Holy Spirit. He could speak in tongues. He did have divine knowledge. He did have prophecy. And he said, all those things are worthless without love. And all those things are temporary. But love is not. That's the message of 1 Corinthians 15. Love is so important as a supporting structure to everything else that we're going to do. It has to run through everything. If we observe in ourselves a lack of growth, well, it's probably because we haven't been loving like we should. We have not properly channeled agape. We are not preferring the things that are good in every way. Um, that it's, it's a broad generalization, but it, it tends to be broadly true. That when people are failing spiritually, when people aren't growing, it's often for a lack of love. So to distinguish agape from, from lower forms of, of love, you have to dedicate your mind and your heart. Uh, because it's easy uh, to think that I'm loving my brethren for the right reasons, but really it's just because they agree with me about everything, or really it's just because I think that they're like me. In the same way that it's easy to, to think, you know, when you uh, are in romantic love with somebody, oh, this is the one. This is the one forever. But uh, over time, it might reveal itself to you that's it's not so. Well, to, we have to search the heart continually to find what motivates us. And this is true in, in every area of our lives, but especially when it comes to how we love one another. Um, am I loving my brethren because God has loved them? And am I trying to love them in the way that God has loved them? To express agape as is fitting in the church, it requires empathy, trying to understand where the other one's coming from. It requires creativity, because sometimes it's not clear how we apply this. And sometimes it might take some ingenuity. Uh, it might take some thinking outside the box to figure out how we show people love as is required. And it definitely requires um, some hospitality, some willingness to open oneself. And it doesn't necessarily mean open your home, although it can mean that, but to be, be willing to give of whatever you have, whatever you have to offer, that is hospitality, and that is a way that we can express agape love. Um, I think Paul speaks of agape first because it is the fruit from which all the other fruits flow. And without the love of, or the fruit of agape, all the other fruits um, are not going to do what they're intended to do. Uh, compare the remaining eight fruits with the characteristics you get in, in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. I actually think it's, it's actually worth turning over there. 1 Corinthians 13, real quick here. 
and then I'll, I'll have to kind of speed through the rest of what I got here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. First Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Excuse me, I said 1 Corinthians 15 earlier. I was thinking of 1 Corinthians 13. But 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, it is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. So it's very similar, the the qualities that are listed in 1 Corinthians 13 with the rest of the fruits of the Spirit, right? And so that's why I think that these all do flow out of agape, out, out of love. Uh, this love that God has given us in the church for one another, shown to us through Christ, it's a gift from God. Paul says that in Romans 5, verse 5. And you ha- it has to be cultivated. Uh, it's not just something that we, re- we receive once and we have it and it's over, but we have to constantly water it and feed it and cultivate it with prayer for increase. Um, Philippians 1 Verse 9. Okay, so that's love. Uh, Agape, we covered that pretty thoroughly. Now quickly running through joy and peace. Uh, Joy, the Greek word here is chera. uh, And you could also translate it delight or gladness. And those ideas are are in that word. Uh, The cognate, uh, or a cognate of a a, a word, or this word is a cognate of a word meaning uh, to be blessed, to be favored. So it might properly be understood as awareness of being favored or awareness of of blessing, awareness of grace. Chara is tightly linked with agape. Um, And and I think all three of these that we're talking about today are linked together in this group of three. When we see every human being as an extension of God's love and an intended recipient of God's love and God's grace, well, that's a joyful way to look at the world, isn't it? Even when you're confronted with with terrible things, with painful things, with bad things. The fact that God's love is working even among all this is a cause for joy. We will feel joy, and joy is is more complex than just happiness. True joy is an awareness of God's love and favor and blessing in everything, good or bad. Now, that's easier said than done, right? All all of these are, are high ideals that we are going to struggle to implement. But just because we struggle to implement them doesn't mean that we can't make significant progress toward developing them and cultivating them in our lives. Chara or or joy is is an interior quality, um, but it's not disconnected from the outside world and and the circumstances that, that you're going through. It responds to them. It's changed by them. You'd be a robot if you went through your life constantly being smiling and overjoyed at every moment, even when you're going through the worst things. I mean, people like that, to me, I find creepy that are like constantly too happy, you know? I don't know, there's something about it that I, I find to be false. But, but uh, true chara, true joy, uh, 
it can be maintained through any circumstance. And maybe I should check myself when I look down on those people who are constantly, you know, uh, telegraphing their, their joyfulness, even though I might find it to be a little bit fake. Well, maybe the thought there is, I'm going to be over the top in my joy, because why be any other way? And I can't argue with that. <laughs> I can't argue with that line of thinking at all. The pleasantness of joy uh, is, is actually uh, increased in correspondence with the degree of difficulty you're going through. Like if you're going through the worst thing you've gone through in your life, you can put yourself in what, what you consider to be the worst time in your life and go back there in your head. If you find one sliver of joy in the midst of that darkness, even if it's very small, it's a big deal, right? If you're going through a deep, dark depression, you can find one thing to laugh at. I mean, that can really make all the difference. One thing to smile at. One thing to take joy in. Well, that's what I mean when I say joy is increased, the worse things are. It, 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 the joy that we feel, you know, it responds to what's going on in the world. It would be, you know, alien of me to lose a close family member or a loved one or a friend and, and respond not with some form of, of grief, obviously. But even in grief, I can have joy. Even in grief, I can take delight in the fact that God is working all things together for good in the end. Think of it this way. A drink of water will satisfy you almost at any time of the day, whether you're that thirsty or not. Our bodies need water, and so when you take a drink of water you tend to get this, your body gives you this big thank you feeling, you know, giving me water. But a drink of water is most precious and most satisfying if you're dying of thirst. If you've been wandering through the desert for days and you're rescued and you're given water, in fact, when this happens in real life, they have to be careful with people who've just been rescued and are extremely dehydrated because you give them water and they'll try to drink it all at once. They drink too much at once and it'll uh, cause you to go into shock. So uh, uh, the person who wants water the most is the one who is closest to death from thirst. At the same time, though, there's never any cost to cultivating joy. It always refreshes. It always satiates. It always makes us feel better. Even if things are great, there's always more things we could look to uh, to bring out the joy, the chara. But if you can cultivate plenty of joy now, things are going well for you now. If you, can, if you can get an abundance of joy in your life now while things are good, you might have some to spare when things get tough. You might be better at cultivating and increasing your joy even through the hardship when the hardships come. The joy you can find in the midst of a, of a spiritual drought will satisfy you more than any joy you've ever felt. If you can harness the joy of God, even when you're going through the worst days of your life, you will know true joy. Joy is a precious fruit because it provides relief and levity from the many difficulties of life. It refreshes, it makes new, taking joy in in the things of God, the things that are good. But again, it's impossible to possess the fruit of joy without first cultivating the fruit of love. And so if joy is hard for you to muster, and sometimes it is, realistically, it's hard to be joyful sometimes. 
But the answer to that is always more love. If you, if you can't summon uh, that emotional part of agape, fake it till you make it. Seriously, do the things that somebody who loves their, their, their brother and their fellow man would do, even if you don't feel it. Love through service, even if the feeling is absent. Because um, love will develop over time. Going through the motions, um, while it's not ideal, and while it's certainly not what we're after in terms of the heart, sometimes that's a bridge to get where we need to go. We do the right things first, and then we'll feel the right things, and then maybe ultimately we can even find some joy uh, when things are hard, when things are difficult. So a general principle for all these fruits, a little effort toward conscientious cultivation of these qualities. And by conscientious cultivation, I mean just specifically going after how do I get more of this quality in my life. A little effort toward that will produce much fruit. A little effort with prayer and with study. Enter into this process of cultivation wherever you can. Again, some might say, I don't feel the joy. I don't feel the love. It's a heart problem. But the way to fix a heart problem is to get working. Get in front of your fellow human beings. Get in front of your, your brethren. Work with your brethren. Uh, interface with them. Love them. Serve them. That's how we correct the heart. Each of these qualities has at least four levels of implementation. These are just four that I could think of. You could probably think of even more. But you can implement these on the level of prayer. You can implement these on the level of thought. You can implement these on the level of feeling or emotion. And you can implement them on the level of doing or action. And all of these are important. And you could, I mean, study is an important one to throw in there too. All of these words have uh, important uses throughout the scripture. And uh, to, com to compile a list of everywhere where each of these terms is used in scripture would be exhaustive. Uh, but it, you could do a long study on each of these words throughout the, the, the Bible, and it would be valuable. Um, we cannot always pray, think, and feel in, in the way that we should or in the way that we would like to. But we can always do as much as we should or would like to. Or, or we cannot always do as much as we should or would like to, but we can always do something. We're limited in, in, in how we can pray and think and feel because our inner life is what it is. And we can't make it something else by wishing that it were so. And life limits us too in, in, in what we can do. What we can do physically, what we can do with our time, what we can do with our finances. But all of us have something to give. All of us can do something. If I can't feel joy, then let me serve someone and maybe that will bring them joy. And then the joy I witness in them will hopefully stir me to a feeling of love for God's work in man and how wonderful his creation is and that I get to play a role in all of that. Maybe then I will begin to feel joy as I should in Christ. Finally, we have peace. I'm moving really fast here. I know I'm over my time. Um, Again, buried in this idea is the idea of oneness, quietness, restfulness, peace of mind, 
It's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word shalom, which they would use as a, as a traditional greeting for each other. It was a greeting meaning peace, uh, a wish of health and well-being on a person in body and spirit. Um, if joy comes from participation through love in, in, in something that's transcendent, something that is bigger than, than just me, then peace is the steadiness, the assurance, the restfulness, the relaxation that comes from that abundant joy in Christ. Once I start feeling joy in everything that's happening here and in my life and in what God is doing in the world, then I can relax. I can let go. I can stop struggling. And that is peace. Paul describes this as the peace of God which passes all understanding. Someone may ask, how could Jesus sleep during a life-threatening storm? How could Jesus have the presence of mind as he's being crucified to say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do? And we could pass those off as saying, well, Christ is divine, and he could do a lot of things that I can't do. I don't think we should discount those examples that way, but we could. And even if you do, how do you explain the scores of Christians who were not divine in the same way that Christ was, who were not uh, divinity incarnate, God in the flesh like Christ? But there are numerous accounts of Christians being persecuted up to the point of torture and death. And the Christians that were tortured and killed did so happily, almost across the board. They, there are accounts of Christians smiling and singing and having joy on their way to, to the Colosseum to be eaten by lions or to be dipped in oil and burned alive or to be beheaded or to be crucified. Those were the kind of fates that a lot of Christians met in the first century. And they were okay with that. They were even happy and joyful that that was their fate. Now you could say, well, how is that? It boggles the mind. When Paul says this peace passes understanding, he means that, I think, in a few different ways. One is, it doesn't make sense by the logic of man, by the reason of man, that one could go to one's death in that way. It looks crazy from the outside looking in. Christ's death looks that way. All the apostles' death looks that way, uh, except for John, who, it seems, died of natural causes although in exile. Um, I think he also means, though, that, that, that the peace that God offers is greater than, it goes farther than, any knowledge or reason or logic of human beings. It's more valuable, more worthy of pursuit than human knowledge. It will carry you farther than knowing things will. This peace, this assurance in God. It is a peace that comes from within rather than a knowledge that comes from without. The world loves knowledge in, in kind of the base sense of, of empirical data. They love to look at the data, look at the numbers. And that's a way of formulating truth, but the truth of God in my life is cultivated um, from the inside out rather than the outside in. There is an outside pre-existing absolute truth. But it is only known in me through Christ, in my inner life. 
This peace results in the knowledge of divine truth working in you, that the knowledge that I have Christ working through me if I am his child. That's an incredible kind of peace, to know that not only is Christ with you, but he is working in your work. This peace says to you that you have a purpose and you have a destiny in the same way that um, existence in this body on this planet has a purpose, has a destiny, has a reason that is known to God. And deep down underneath all the ugliness and brokenness, God is taking me and is taking this world, this creation, and he is transforming it from one state to another. No outside force, no power of hell or scheme of man, as one song puts it, is powerful enough to disrupt, to disrupt the work and the purpose of God. God wins. We win with God. We prevail at the end of all things. And that is the ultimate peace. There is nothing to worry about. Victory is already won. This peace of God has existed before time and will exist when time is no more. The victory of God has been written since the foundation of the world. We cling to God in trust so that we can grow. Love, joy, peace. One comes from the other and all are related to each other. But if we're viewing each other as expressions of God's love and as beings made in the image of God for the purpose of God's love, then we will find a joyful life and underneath that there will be great peace that will sustain us through the storm. Fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. Against such there is no law. Next week we will uh, talk about patience, kindness, and goodness. And then the Sunday morning after that we'll talk about faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that'll be the end of our series on Galatians 5. But uh, as we're going through the next few weeks, I just want everybody to your little homework assignment through the week is think of ways that we can cultivate these fruits more effectively here in this church and in our own lives. And some of the ways that you might think of might be things that you want to keep to yourself and implement on a personal level. And some of the ideas that might come to you might be things that you think, you know, maybe uh, we could um, do together here uh, um, in this group. And share those if, if you have those. But it's worth ruminating on and meditating on a little bit. How do we um, get these fruits growing? We already, we already have these fruits um, in, in abundance, I believe, here. But we can always have more. We can always do more. Uh, we can always uh, get more love and joy and peace in our lives as Christians. If you have any need as a Christian, if you've not been made a child of God... Or if you are a child of God and you've lost your way and need to be brought back onto the path, we encourage you to come to make that right. We're going to sing a song that's been announced, and as we do, anyone who has need uh, is asked to come, and we will support and uplift you in prayer. If any have need, make that known as we stand and sing the song we've announced.